City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. Okay, here we're on City Limits. It's the um, it's the fourth week of the month, and uh, this and today we're going to, in fact, for most of the program, play a piece that was played on um, Radio Echo Shock on Sunday. A very good program that comes on Sunday morning. A few months ago, before summer, we played an interview they did, in fact, with Greg Mullins, the fire chief from Sydney, who predicted all that was going to happen this summer in Australia with bushfires and. Last Sunday, they interviewed David Spratt, the Australian who wrote, or Melbourneian here, of course, David, who wrote Climate Change Code Red more than 10 years ago, giving us great warnings then. And he's written a new book, and it was an excellent interview, and we thought, we thought we'd play it, play it partly because another interview we'd planned fell out, but also because it was a very important interview and well worth hearing. So I advise people to hang in for that. But also on the line at the moment, we have um, Howard Morosi from People for Public Housing, who was on the line last week. But Howard, you've come on today because you're going to update us on the government. Um, well, perhaps before we go on, we should introduce ourselves a little bit, couldn't we? Um, perhaps Meg, you're here, are you not? Yes. Morning, listeners. Right. Karina's, Karina's there. I'm Kevin Healy and um, Meg Kimber, Karina and um, Howard. Howard, the government today has announced... Well, today, Monday, in fact, as we record this, but uh, two days ago, as it goes to air, uh, new rules about or new conditions about renting in the in the residential market. Could you update us? Yeah. So the government has now announced a uh, a rent freeze. So it's not you can't actually put rents up now between now and, and the end of the COVID crisis. At the moment, it's six months. Uh, no evictions. Uh, you can apply for rent reductions. <clears throat> which can be mediated for you or even ordered by the government or the courts. You can also apply for a $2,000 grant if you're paying over 30% of your income in rent and you've got less than $5,000 in the bank. And you can also terminate a lease early uh, under certain conditions if you apply uh, and there won't be a cost for that. That's interesting. The, the, um, the website indicates that you have to have tried to negotiate a change in your rent with your landlord or real estate agent before you can apply for the grant is that was that your reading of it as well yeah so you've got to go through a process and then you can get the two thousand dollars yeah last week you were fairly critical of the victorian government's response up to date Are are you more pleased now after this yeah yeah it's 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 um it'll help a lot of people uh, some people are still not happy because, well, for example, what happens between um, between now and and when people get on to um, JobSeeker? I mean, there's new start coming. If you're on a high rent now and your rent's frozen and you lose your, all your income, that means how are you going to pay your rent even if it's frozen? And the other question is, if they can't evict you and you don't pay your rent, what happens then? And that's that's not clear to me from from the uh, the media release. 
So what, this is actually going to be voted on in Parliament on Thursday and we'll have a clearer idea of the actual workings of it in terms of the detail of the working of it after that. So there's those problems I just pointed to um, and there's also the question of exactly how much rent are you going to be able to get through this mediation and, and uh, judicial process. I couldn't find any guidelines for it. There might have been some, but I couldn't find any. So it really depends on the detail. How much rent are these? Are the is the process going to? Um, how much rent reduction is it going to bring about? What I mean, what they should really be doing is saying, if you're on a certain income, this will be your rent. Uh, they should be saying we're going to take over that debt from the landlord and do exactly what they've done with. Um, what the federal government's done with uh, mortgages. So the federal government's given the banks enough money so that the banks can actually uh, freeze or actually defer all payments of, uh, of mortgages now. And then when it comes time to repay it at the end of the COVID period, those payments will actually just be added to the, um, the actual loan. So you'll have the remainder of the loan to pay it off. So what the government could be doing in the case of renters is saying we're going to we're going to say well you don't have to pay the rent if you can't afford it if you've got a certain amount of income and we'll take it we'll take over that debt we'll pay out the landlord and you can pay us back you know a certain amount of dollars over this, you know a reasonable amount of time might be five years or ten years or whatever mm. the same way that they've done it for the and I don't see any indication of that. So that'll be a flaw, but it will definitely help a lot of people. Yeah. What are they offering landlords? And must, they must be offering them something to get balance into it as they see it. Yep. So they're actually offering, uh, let's see, there's $500 million um, for, for the entire package, um, $420 million to landlords in land tax relief. So... Um, if, wow. a landlord, if a landlord provides tenants impacted by the coronavirus with rent relief, they'll be eligible for a 25% discount on their land tax, while any remaining land tax can be deferred until next year. So, I mean, good for landlords, but the thing mm. is, yeah, what they've actually allocated for tenants is only $80 million out of the 500. $500 million. I'm going to say that's, that's 84% to landlords of, yeah. the, of the package. And that includes commercial tenancies as well. So it's not just for uh, residential tenancies, the whole um, package. I don't know exactly if the $80 million is just for residential tenants or if it's for commercial as well. Yeah, it's not clear. Mm. Wow. Well, um, and, and one of the other things yeah. about the um, this uh, rent relief assistance is that it's not only for Australian citizens, it's also for... Uh, people on visas, working holiday visas and things like that. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right, actually. So that's that's um, definitely an advance on what the federal government's been able to offer so far. Mm-hmm. Yeah, on that last point about students from overseas, there's a, a quite moving picture in this morning, not moving in terms of moving movies, but a picture in this morning's Financial Review Education page of students lined up outside a a church food handout at the weekend because they they've got they didn't have enough food and 
it's it's quite a moving a long long line of students overseas students who've got no income lining up for food at a church church handout quite apart from the humanitarian aspect of it it's not very good for business in the future is it i'm sure that's going to go viral around the world and um students will think twice about australia as a destination uh, to study in the future if they're going to be lining up in in food um food queues yes and, and i noticed that um it doesn't affect uh us per, us per se, but I noticed, I mentioned last week that the insurance, insurance, uh, landlord insurance insists that they can't be paid for rent defaults until the tenant's been thrown out. And a number of landlords have opposed that. But I noticed again in this morning's paper that insurers are just now stopping providing rental at all or providing insurance at all for landlords in this situation, so they're making it even more difficult, um, which I don't care much about landlords, but they are making it more difficult. So the insurance company, as usual, is going to come out on top. But uh, but at least there's, I suppose there's, I'll just show the pour, we haven't had the pouring of the tea, I'll just pour a bit, hang on a tick. There we are. Um, yeah, it's it's a, it's a certainly a, a, an advantage, a benefit from last week anyway. We've gone further than, uh, than we were last week, which is good, I suppose. So a comment from uh, Renters Organising Action and Resistance. That's raw. If you want to get it on Facebook, they would rather have seen the $500 million spent on expansion of public housing where there's no question of eviction mm. uh, based on income mm. Um, mm. and makes the point that the real aim of the package is to prop up the housing market. Which is probably a little bit harsh um, because, you know, at least there is protection being given to the renters. And the other thing is, um, I guess the other point to make is that landlords can actually get um, assistance with their mortgages. So why are they, why are they seeking to, um, given that, okay, they can get relief for their mortgage, but they can get relief for their land tax. So there's no actual expense that they're going to have to cover to get rent from. So they could just, you know, take a bit of a holiday from rent and not have to fork out expenses. So I guess in some ways, you know, we should be arguing for an, an entire pause on rent. Yeah. Uh, and if if they get the mortgage, uh, the mortgage deferment, in fact, they benefit because they then have to pay it back immediately. But on the other hand, they might insist that the renters pay them immediately. So they win both ways. Yeah, that's right. So they're, they're getting a bit of a windfall gain there. So I guess when you look a bit more closely, there, it, there are things to criticise about it. But looking at it from the point of view of a lot of renters, it will give a lot of assistance. So, And it's much better than what they were saying last week, which was uh, ask your landlord for um, for a bit of relief and uh, hope hope they'll say yes. So at least now it's taken out of, out of the landlord's hands and given to um, a government body to determine. Yeah, I was going to say this body. It's being referred Sorry, to. Tim, they announced the body. Is it is it VCAT or is there going to be a special board form to do this, uh, yeah, which they a, can refer it to? It's a committee. It's a uh, it's some sort of board. Uh, let's see, Dispute Settlement Centre of Victoria, and they will they'll do the mediation. So if your landlord doesn't agree to what you ask, which will probably be in like ninety nine percent of cases. Uh, you'll go to the Dispute Settlement Centre of Victoria 
for free mediation and um, they will try and uh, get the landlord and the tenant to agree on rent reduction. And if not, they'll make a, a binding order. So what they decide will be binding. And if you're in dispute, you can go to VCAT or the courts. Oh, well, that's, yeah, well, that's, that sounds reasonable, actually. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Look, I've got I some... <laughs> We, I'm sorry, but I'm in a reasonable mood because I'm quite excited. There is a positive rental story in this morning's Herald Sun, of all places. You'll be pleased to know that wow. Prince Harry and Meghan have found a place to rent in Los Angeles near their friends Elton John, etc. And it's only worth $16 million, this property, and gated community, pool and gardens. They've got a gym. Um, they've been hunting for months, um, so they have tried to make life as comfortable as possible in their rented house that is accessible through two guarded checkpoints and is touted as being paparazzi-proof. Most houses there are enormous and quite a few celebs live nearby, including Sir Elton. Megan wants to be close to the Hollywood action sources, said, well, she wants a job. But uh, it's good news, isn't it? Because I suppose if you're used to living in castles and palaces, then you've got to come down pretty slowly. And uh, so they're moving into something, $16 million worth of house to, to rent. Isn't that wonderful? They, are they taking a mortgage or are they just buying it outright? No, they're, they're, no, they're just going to rent this one. They're still hunting for a place to actually, they're still looking for their dream home. But while they look for their dream home, they're going to rent this place. Well, I, I understand California's got rent relief as well, so they might be able to defer their rent. Oh, you've got to hope so. You've got to hope so. <laughs> That's right. Anyway, I can see why you're in such a good mood, Kevin. Oh, it's, it, I was—I was, read this this morning. I was so excited. I thought that's wonderful news for Harry and Meg. And that's another Meg, of course. By the way, not um, our Meg. Not, you not might me. be able to—you might be able to pull the same trick, uh, Megan, Actually, and I was thinking about buying, get, uh, like, renting a mansion in California. Actually, yes, yes, get your Hollywood career running. Exactly. Um, for people who might have just tuned in, you're listening to City Limits. It's being recorded, pre-recorded, um, a little bit earlier than Wednesdays or from a, a distance, so bear with us as we make this work in these unusual times. Um, we've got about five minutes left, and Kevin usually has about 30 minutes at least of newspaper cuttings, and I'm assuming you've been just as busy as usual reading the Herald Sun cover to cover. Kevin, I've got so plenty, what's, but what's I've got plenty. But I, I do want to raise something. I, a friend dropped off to me a copy of uh, a paper from a few months ago, uh, and it, it was an article by Don Watson, the the former advisor to Labor governments, etc., who's very much into into parliamentary democracy and Canberra being the centre of all, etc. But he's he's got a He's got a story, or he's got a piece about the Labor Party defeat and the fact that both parties try to make differences between themselves, but there's really none, which we all know. But he makes some interesting points about the people they aim at in terms of voters, about the middle class. And he, he may, I just want to see what you think about this. Um, he says the middle class now is not middle class in ways that would make a lot of sense to old residents of Camberwell or Mossman or to old sociologists either. 
Having just tumbled out of capitalism's revolutionary churn, the new middle class is bound to lack the time-warm habits of the old one. Being new, it has no roots in much beyond its own self-interest and no values to call its own, except perhaps those picked up from management philosophy. He goes on to say, being new, the new middle class is in part defined by the absence of ideology or even of any consciousness of itself as a class. The Prime Minister, however, as as any other, has uh, quickly addressed this shortcoming by giving it, and any others happy to accept one, an identity or at least a brand. It is very touching and powerful, Monica, even suggesting a philosophy, or is quietude more of a faith? They have become the quiet Australians, and now they know that self-interest and aspiration are the blessed states of man. Birch, as you say, he's really saying, isn't he, that they have people with no concern but their own self-interest who are the targets of both parties' policies, which is a pretty sad reflection on us if it's true. What what do you think of that argument? That's interesting. Um, The writer is suggesting that there's been a shift in what the middle class is interested in in terms of they're mostly interested in their own uh, comfortable lives. What what yes. are they what what is the writer saying that, that the middle class used to be in, interested in? Do you know what I mean? Well, he, he said the the middle class used to be the sort of people in Camberwell, or he says Mossville. I suppose we'd think those places oh. like Kew, etc. Whereas now, it's I, th- I think personally, I think so many of the working class who are working class consider themselves middle class these days. Class, but unfortunately, yeah. he's right; they have no values. But in, in other ways. Yeah. Because I question this in some ways, because in things like climate change, rallies, etc., you do still see thousands of people come out yes. and show concern yes. for something beyond their own self-interest. So I suppose it is their own self-interest long-term in many ways as well, but they've, yeah. they've got a concern about the broader society. It's an interesting argument. It would be interesting to read the article. Where did you say it was? It was actually in the monthly. Uh, it was a monthly oh, yeah. dated a friend just dropped them into me on Saturday. A couple of magazines took get me over my boredom. I think must have, must have thought I was bored. Um, but it, it's yeah, it's November. Well, it's November November 2019, so it's about three or four months old. The article. Oh yeah, closer to the election time. Well, it's an interesting argument, especially if you're looking at how to counter the effects of capitalism, and you want to harness something, some some energies of the people who are basically whose, whose labour is, is being used in that system. And if that is now, like, if you, as you say, a lot more of people who are working class might actually be thinking of themselves or, or positioned within a space that's actually middle class, um, that the message of being working class might not seem at all relevant to them, even though their labour is the thing that's being um, used to keep capitalism running. Yeah, it, it, I suppose going going back to previous times, they would have called it the hip pocket nerve in many ways. That you appeal to that. <laughs> oh right. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Do you think that still works? Um, well, it, it worked for Morrison last time, unfortunately. But uh, it, I suppose it does in some ways. <laughs> if you get a, if you get a prime minister like Morrison appealing to hip pocket nerve or to the so-called new middle class, then I guess that's the case. But Yeah. Well, we can only hope. 
Yes. So that's, I just thought I'd raise that. Look, we're going to have to go to this other interview, which was, as I say, this is Alex Smith from Radio EcoShock, which, as I say, it's Sunday morning on 3CR at 6 o'clock. It's a bit early, but it's a wonderful program on environmental issues. Sunday this week, he interviewed David Spratt, our Melbourne, Melbourneian friend of 3CR, friend of all of us, who wrote Code Red uh, 10 years ago, warning us of the danger, you know, of the urgency of climate change. And now he's written a new book. So it's about that. So I think we need to go to that, do we not? And yep. um, and um, after it's over, we'll just wind up the show. Housing for the Aged Action Group has gone digital to help stop the spread of the coronavirus, but we're still here. If you're over 50 years old and having problems with your housing, we can help. If you're having trouble paying the rent, problems with your retirement village manager, or concerned about your caravan park, give us a call on 1300 765 178. We can also help connect you with aged care services and emergency relief if you need it. Stay safe, everyone. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. David Spratt is the author of the book and blog Climate Code Red. He is a senior researcher at the Breakthrough National Centre for Climate Restoration. David and co-author Ian Dunlop published their devastating critique of climate science, What Lies Beneath, The Inside Story of Political Failure and Scientific Reticence on Climate Change's Existential Risks. And now they have out a new report, Fatal Calculations, just in time for the global pandemic. Do we have time for climate change anymore? From Australia, David Spratt, welcome back to Radio EcoShock. Alex, great to be with you and your listeners. It's wild you bring out a new report on how bad economics lulled corporations and governments to sleep on climate change. And now we have this massive turning point, not of anyone's choosing. Do you think the former economy will collapse? Will it rebuild as was or or what? Look, in terms of the pandemic, I think it's really far too early to tell. I mean, a lot of things are being turned um, upside down. They're not stable. We don't know where they're going. We don't know whether the global financial system is at the edge of collapse. You never do until it happens or whether it's able to deal with these circumstances. We don't know how deep or long the recessions will be. So I think a lot of this is a, is a matter of speculation, but there are some things of interest. I mean, most importantly, that we've actually seen an emergency response to a, a, an overwhelming threat, which has implications for climate change. And we've also seen governments take a leadership role and be prepared to do all the things that were told for climate change they couldn't do, like think about the future, run large deficits, protect people rather than the economy in the short term. So there are obviously a lot of learnings from this. Well, right, David, most of the moves we called on for years to prevent the developing climate disaster, they were ignored as too radical. Uh, I mean, like ending fossil power travel, shutting down the most polluting industries, switching to online instead of commuting all the time. Now it's suddenly happening due to COVID-19. We could have done this decades ago. Well, of of course we could, and that was the point when we wrote Climate Code Red in 2008, to say that 
an emergency mobilisation is both possible, and we know because of historical antecedents like the, the war economy, a language which people are using again today, and out of necessity. And we've seen when the necessity is perceived and the threat is perceived as being right in front of our face, we are capable of going into this mode. And that mode is where a government makes the threat, whether it be a pandemic or climate, which is really a much larger threat, the first priority of business. They devote all the necessary resources to it. You have generally, with some exceptions, a large degree of bipartisanship, uh, the speeding up of science and research and research to solve the, uh, the, the problems which are outstanding, and the devotion of all the necessary resources to solve the problem. I mean, the, the debts that are now being run up by governments, which are necessary, would be unthinkable six months ago in a neoliberal environment, political economy environment. So in circumstances which were unthinkable, unthinkable things are able to be done. Probably the single greatest threat of COVID-19 is that by the time we see symptoms, by the time we get really sick, the person has already been spreading the disease unknowingly for a week or more, and some people never get symptoms, but they have it and they spread the disease. Surely climate change is hard for the same reason. By the time cities flood and the landscape burns, it's way too late. What can we learn here? Well, you're exactly right. And one of the reasons it turned out to be a problem around the world was that there are obviously a lot of passive or asymptomatic transmitters of the disease through the globalised economy, particularly trade and, and air travel and tourism. And when people woke up and those symptoms manifested, it was too late. So the pandemic is a small version of climate change and it's, it's on steroids in that things are condensed and happening in weeks, which in climate change take years and months. But, I mean, the, the point is the same. And we see that those countries such as Singapore, Taiwan and South Korea, which have learned firsthand the lessons of the SARS virus in 2003 and knew what to do, acted very differently from the rest of the world. I mean, they tested early, they ramped up, they, they did all the things that they'd found that they hadn't done in SARS, and it made a very big difference to those countries versus the rest of the world. So the, the principal lesson, as you say, is that by the time the problem manifests, it's too late or, or what you have to do is, is much more difficult and much more disruptive. And, of course, that's the climate change writes that, that story in a, in a, in a, on a larger picture. In great big capital letters, yes. And for decades, humans spent trillions on the military and other harmful things instead of retooling into a renewable, low-energy society. And now, of course, most governments are handing out, as you say, vast amounts of what I call fantasy money, mostly to banks and business. Uh, you know, the common person will get the leftovers. But they will then say, we cannot afford to change now. How can we handle that? That's the big issue, of course, isn't it? A lot of people are speculating that this is the end of neoliberalism and everything's going to be overturned. I mean, my great fear is that uh, at the end of this period when the virus is under control, we have a, a vaccine or it's suppressed, then we will go back to, oh, now we've got to pay off the debts and we've got to even do more belt tightening than before. So I think the really important thing out of this is to draw some of the big lessons about climate change and I think they are firstly that an emergency mobilisation 
devoting the resources necessary to uh, to solve a problem is is possible and necessary and feasible, and that's what we've just proved. Uh, the second thing, which hasn't had much discussion, is learning from the failure of the response to the pandemic by and large. Pandemics are listed uh, and considered around the world to be a catastrophic risk, almost an existential risk. Certainly, for example, if you look at the role that smallpox played in uh, depopulating the native indigenous populations of the Americas, where perhaps 90% of people were, were killed, uh, it is clearly epidemics can be, pandemics can be an existential risk. But countries simply didn't understand, despite all the rhetoric and despite all the policy papers and scenarios, it is clear from their actions that governments did not understand that this pandemic could be an existential risk and they didn't act as if it was. And the reasons why they didn't do that are really important to understand because those same reasons apply to climate change. Exactly. So let's talk about your new report written with Alia Armistead. It's called Fatal Calculations, How Economics Has Underestimated Climate Damage and Encouraged Inaction. Why did you do this? Well, as you mentioned in the introduction a couple of years ago, we published a report called What Lies Beneath on what we called scientific reticence, particularly in, in the work of the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and their reports, which underestimated the risks, didn't look at what are called the fat tail or the worst possibilities, uh, and generally went for middle-of-the-road outcomes. And as John Schellenhuber, Professor John Schellenhuber said in before to that report, at times like this when the risks are unprecedented, you shouldn't worry about the probabilities, the 50% or the 60%, but you should worry about the bad possibilities. And it had always occurred to me that as with the science, there was a parallel problem with the economics, that the economics applied to climate change is also reticent in deceitful in underestimating the problem and therefore encouraging inaction. And, of course, the largest part of this story, interesting given that the pandemic has happened in the response, is the argument that we shouldn't act on climate change if it's going to cost us anything or be economically disruptive at all. And that sort of line of argument is embedded in the core of the economic analysis of climate change and the cost-benefit analysis models which have that assumption at the core of their being. Yes, I was stunned to read in your report the following, quote, Former Prime Minister John Howard on 5 February 2007 told the ABC's Late Line that it would be less comfortable for some than it is now if average global temperatures rose 4 to 6 degrees centigrade by the end of the century. Just like Trump in the pandemic, they can't imagine the reality, the well-documented reality. Where is Australia now on climate? Well, we're not doing well because we have a conservative government. The successor is John Howard's government, which is essentially a government in denial about the problem, a policy which I call delay and denial. They still want to open new coal-fired power stations. They want to make Australia the largest exporter of fossil fuels in the world. And we are just about the largest exporter of liquefied natural gas in the world at the moment. So this is a government in, in, in full denial, despite a, a really heartfelt and large community campaign, which has resulted in the, the closing down of a number of coal-fired power stations and has so far stopped the development of the largest new coal field in the world in Queensland. So we have a mixed story here. 
But wait, still dragging feet even after the historic fires that damaged Australia and stunned the world? Well, we'd only just recovered from the fires, which were made worse by climate change. They were unprecedented in in their nature and and shocked uh, the system. We'd only just recovered from them when uh, the pandemic hit. So I don't think there's been a full political accounting for the fires yet. But so far, hard to see much change in movement. But I think these are politically very volatile times. A terrible one-two punch for Australia. And we've just had uh, a new survey of the Great Barrier Reef, um, one of the world's seven natural wonders, a coral system of which three quarters had been lost over the last 40 years. And there's been another bleaching, that is warmer seas, um, have uh, killed off another swathe of the reef. And they say perhaps one of the worst uh, bleachings on record. So this is... You know, the reality that climate change is here, not in the future, and climate change is already dangerous, not a future proposition. But with the imminent threat of pandemic, many people are ready to postpone talk and action on climate and until it's over, maybe a year or two. The UN Climate Change Conference, COP26, was postponed in Scotland. It's been delayed for a year. But, you know... Given three decades of failure to address climate change, while emissions rose and rose, I'm not sure that the COP process really matters anyway. Your thoughts? Well, the UN Secretary-General, in in a somewhat unfortunate term of phrase, uh, announced a couple of weeks ago that the climate issue for the United Nations was on the back burner. He could have said (laughs) off the boil. It's uh, unfortunate language. Uh, But yes, it has been deferred. Look, I'm not sure that those processes make any difference anymore since the UN climate policy-making processes were established more than 25 years ago. We've seen global emissions increase by more than 50%. We've seen the temperature continue to increase, perhaps at an accelerating rate. We are likely to hit 1.5 degrees, which will be very dangerous by the end of this decade. And I'm not sure that those processes uh, have really done much good. If you look at the last big COPs talk in Paris, the, what came out of that was voluntary unenforceable agreements, sorry, commitments, some of which haven't been honoured. And the Paris path is one to three, between three and five degrees of warming. That is around three without taking the carbon cycle feedbacks and the non-linear climate processes into account five, perhaps five with them. And we know that that range of warming three to five is is catastrophic. National security people say that three degrees of warming would likely to lead to a situation where the international or the world would be characterised by the term outright chaos. Professor Kevin Anderson in the UK has said, and many others agree, that four degrees is incompatible with the maintenance of civilization. And earlier this year, Johan Rockström, who's taken over from John Schellenhuber, as the head of the Potsdam Institute in Germany, reaffirmed that if we got to four degrees, perhaps the human population would be reduced to a billion people. So this is a catastrophic failure of policymaking. And I, as you say, I wonder whether those processes have run their course. And we have to look more to the interests of nations and regions and really big deals, uh, bilateral deals, for example, between the EU and China as the way to provide some leadership. Yes, because right now, a lot of big governments are not working on it either. In fact, America, Australia, and Canada are making it easier for fossil fuel companies to pollute even more. We are slashing regulations meant to protect society and nature, and we're doling out billions in emergency aid to the wealthiest companies in the world. 
including propping up uh, the high-polluting airline industry, uh, global travel industry, which is precisely the industry which allowed the rapid spread of this virus. Uh, Yeah, the U.S. is giving them $50 billion just to tide them over for a little while. Yes, well, look, obviously there's going to be a reckoning. I mean, the stimulus, economic stimulus to save your package has just been directed literally at propping up the economy as it is in its present structure and functioning, which is not the way we need it to be uh, if we're going to get out of the climate crisis. But I think over the next few months, we can't have the pandemic as being 90% of the news every day. Our, our, Our fear... Our overwhelming fear and engagement with this issue, I think, will diminish a bit, and then we will have to go back to a conversation, as the Club of Rome and others have, have pointed to, of the risks of stimulus just perpetuating the status quo when everybody says we now need the most rapid of transitions when we need a climate emergency. So that is difficult in these circumstances because attention is, is elsewhere, but as we've said on the other hand, we've demonstrated that the mode of action necessary to address the problem is is in fact possible and has just occurred. This is Radio Ecoshock. I'm Alex Smith. My guest is David Spratt from climatecodered.org. David, we are bound to have climate-driven emergencies during the months to come, even during the pandemic. What would have happened if Australia had those recent record wildfires while illness made travel and groups of people working together very dangerous. This is the problem that people really don't understand and governments don't understand is that you have catastrophic risks uh, which are very difficult to manage, but you also have system failures where those risks intersect. I spent a little bit of time looking in the national security area and, and the military in Australia, which is a you know, a relatively small beast compared to the United States and and other places, say that if they were forced to respond to uh, a bushfire, and we brought out the militaries to do some tasks in Australia, and there were Category 5 hurricanes in the Pacific and they had to send uh, disaster relief and something else happened to our our near north and, and forces required, they simply don't have the capacity to respond. And this is the question. When these catastrophic risk intersect and we have to remember that uh, modern society globalization and more rapid transfer of movement of people has actually made this pandemic worse when these crises intersect our capacity to respond will be overwhelmed so it's not that one risk plus another one risk equals two it actually equals three four or five Lost in the news on that theme, the Pacific Island nation of Vanuatu recently experienced Typhoon Herald, the second strongest ever recorded there. The strongest was just five years ago in 2015. Uh, Right now, New Orleans is suffering the fastest growing death rate on the planet from COVID-19. And at the same time, the waters in the Gulf of Mexico are really hot, way above average, So we have to imagine a major hurricane striking Texas and Louisiana again, another Katrina. I don't know how humans are going to cope with these double and triple punches as they come, climate and COVID together. That's the question, and that's why if if you have a look at the, uh, the, you know, the relatively dispassionate analysis of of national security experts, they see around the world, particularly in in perhaps a three-degree warmer world, that you have the intersections of of these problems of more extreme weather events that you've talked about, the rising sea levels, the desertification. Uh, We've seen, you know, a minor example, I hate to use the word minor, but in in Syria where desertification and um, drought 
in the end, as a consequence of a civil war that uh, was made worse by climate change, led to the displacement of more than 10 million people. And that displacement to Europe actually caused a political crisis in, in, in Europe and it spread around. Now, that's just, that's just a, a small element of what would happen as the dry subtropics simply can no longer support agriculture. And, and the world that is, is understood and imagined at three degrees beyond the physical impacts when we get into the political consequences, the state breakdown, uh, the forced migration, the food and water shortages is, is of a total system breakdown. Would you tell us about the National Climate Emergency Summit in Melbourne in the middle of February, possibly the last such meeting other than virtual space we'll see for a little while? I'm Research Director for Breakthrough and our umbrella body, the Sustainable Living Festival, uh, has a large event each, each year. And this year, on the 14th and 15th of February, that was devoted to a National Climate Emergency Summit um, held in the splendour of Melbourne's 19th century Victorian Town Hall. About 2,000 people registered. Uh, there were more than 100 speakers and presenters and facilitators. So really a very large event with a, a lot of very eloquent voices. So it really was a, a chance for all those people who'd been working on climate emergency uh, declarations at the local government level uh, and in community campaigns to come together to think about where we've, we've got to, to hear from people like Professor Michael E. Mann, who was visiting from the United States, was on sabbatical here, and as soon as he arrived, he got hit by the fires. And I think his whole research project changed. And in fact... He was forced to return to the United States prematurely because of the of the travel bans uh, from the pandemic. So he experienced a couple of intersecting climate crises, but a, a really wonderful event. Um, all the sessions are online. They were they were videoed and they're available. If people just look up Climate Emergency Summit Melbourne, um, the full list of, of videos and uh, and workshops is there. Beautiful. I'm going to check that out. Now, here's something else that really bugs me. Countries from the United States to Australia routinely report their direct greenhouse gas emissions, and the rest of the numbers don't mean much. And and Canada does the same. But David, what about the cumulative emissions from burning all our tar sands that we export, the coal that Australia exports, the natural gas that so many countries are exporting? Why don't we add up the real emissions we cause? And have you calculated what Australia's real emissions are when all the fossil fuel exports are added in? Well, this is, of course, a very contentious question because the world has offloaded a large amount of its manufacturing to to China and what were considered the lower-wage economies, developing economies, India, Vietnam, and, and so on. So everybody looks at China and says, my goodness, there's you know, a huge increase in emissions there. But, I mean, a good proportion of those are related to products which are exported back for consumption in the West. And yet China is lumped with the responsibility for them. The same thing happens in Australia where we are a very large exporter of thermal coal, metallurgical coal and liquid, liquid gas but we only count the emissions associated with directly mining them, the fugitive emissions and the transport and the building of the infrastructure and so on. But when those fossil fuels are burnt somebody else, that's somebody else's responsibility. The actual effect of Australia's export fossil fuels and attributed to Australia, our emissions profile would more than triple, as one example. 
And it's true of Canada and so many countries, Saudi Arabia and on, and Russia. And now I think, though, David, that part of the problem is that people here three degrees centigrade or, say, five Fahrenheit, and, and then they add that to their picture of an average day. It doesn't sound too bad. So it's a few degrees warmer. We can handle that. We'll, we'll just crank up the AC. They don't know that land will warm much more than the massive ocean. They don't understand natural feedback loops. They don't get exp- exponential math that's involved. Can't picture abrupt climate change. And it seems at times that almost no amount of science or rational explanation can reach enough people in time. And and, and so, in a way, we have a pandemic of, of ignorance that threatens our future terribly. That's that's true, and it's, any science is relatively difficult to communicate, particularly to people who are only seemingly interested and don't have a, some, some background or interest in the issue. But I think if we look at the pandemic, there's something really interesting has happened. Uh, we've seen some really decisive political leadership where politicians, for a change, have actually done what they're elected to do, which is to protect the people and lead. And there have been some, you know, some very good examples of political leaders um, at a national, regional, even at a city level, being able to explain in fairly simple but useful terms to people what's going on with the virus. What are the choices? He's bending the curve. This is what will happen if we act. This is what will happen if we didn't act. Now, those people are just as capable of communicating like that about climate change, but they have so far chosen not to. So in that, I think there's a really valuable lesson that if leaders decide to lead, they do have the, com- the capacity to take people with them, to encourage behaviour change and to educate people. We can't expect the scientists to, to do that last level of education. That is up to our, our leaders and it has just been proven that it can be done effectively. So in your new report, Fatal Calculations, you say mainstream economists, the ones who bolster government do-nothingism, they just leave out serious risks. Can you give us a couple of examples of what's left out? Well, look, there's lots of things left out. I mean, all economics of climate change is based on what anybody who ever did Economics 101 uh, learned. That is a thing called, a much-abused term, cost-benefit analysis, where you work out the the cost of acting or not acting and the benefits of acting or not acting and you add it up and you work out what's the best thing to do. Is it better to rent or buy or all those sorts of things? So it's based on comparing sums of money. So the problems are several. The first is that if climate change, with its high-end possibilities, which we've talked about at three or four degrees, actually brings human civilization to an end, uh, which it will, then you simply can't quantify or put a number on the damage. The damage is so high, it's infinite. It can't be estimated. And as soon as you put an infinite number into a cost-benefit equation, the equation can't work because what you learn is that no matter how much you spend to avoid that problem, it's much better than the world coming to an end. So uh, I was really taken by uh, a guy called Spencer Glendon, who's now a senior fellow at the Woodhouse a research centre in the North East uh, US and was a former director of, a, of an investment management company. And he said, and I quote, the economics of climate change will be seen as one of the worst mistakes humans have made, much worse than any of the denialists. And I think that's a problem because there is an underestimation of the risks. And the most notorious case, which we start our report with, 
is that um, of a guy called William Nordhaus, who is the godfather of economy, climate, energy system models called integrated assessment models, um, a form, of, a very crude form of cost-benefit analysis, who two years ago was awarded the Nobel Prize for economics for his work in, as a pioneer in this field. And for decades, and even at the Nobel Prize ceremony, he got up and said, if we get to four degrees of warming, I think the cost will only be about 4% of the economy. And he, in fact, said that three to four degrees of warming is the optimum path from his economics point of view. Now, this is, this is a scandal. This is a, 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 a delusion so profound, and yet his work and the work of his associates, the climate economists, has been at the core of the IPCC and the UN policy-making process. So there is this systematic underestimation of the damage, so severe that it's hard to believe, and that has simply makes their work not credible and irrelevant to the decisions we have to make. Recently with the pandemic, David Spratt, we have seen a few empty food shelves, perhaps for the first time in our lives. We, we take our plentiful food for granted. How does developing climate change play into Australian food security, as an example? And, and what does it mean for those countries who depend on food exports from your country? Well, this is, of course, is, is the big issue. Australia produces more food than uh, it needs, particularly a large exporter of staple grains like wheat. And we saw in the Arab Spring that the, one of the main drivers of the Arab Spring was wheat shortages brought on by simultaneous events, that is, wildfires in Russia and a fire of the monsoon in China, which both drove down wheat production in those countries. And the Middle East is the most dependent region in the world uh, on wheat exports, the price of wheat tripled, and that became the, the essential driver of the, of the Arab Spring. So we, know we have history in this area, we, and now the world relies on just-in-time supply chains. Rather than storing, being more self-sufficient, having manufacturing capacity at home, the world is more dependent uh, on just-in-time systems. So uh, I don't know what the experience was in other countries, but certainly we had some runs on goods here which were not rationally justified because Australia can produce enough food and toilet paper and basic things to keep on going. But I imagine other parts of the world, if this was sustained, certainly in Australia, people selling um, goods uh, have been able to, unable to get shipping out of China and other parts of India, uh, other parts of Asia for the last couple of months. So we can see that a climate dislocation of the global transport shipping system and of globalised production would have dramatic consequences. We have talked about huge risk and worry, but now to the other side of your coin. What are the benefits if we reshape this economy away from fossil fuels as we emerge from this pandemic shutdown? What do we have to gain, even at this late date? Look, I think what we have to gain is that we, as a, as a, a modern functioning society, will be here in 100 years' time. I mean, that is, 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 is now, the, now the choice. Um, I was really drawn to a couple of comments by uh, uh, Professor John Schellenhuber uh, recently. I mean, Schellenhuber was the director of the Potsdam Institute, still is an advisor to Pope Francis and has been an advisor to both Angela Merkel and the EU, one of the most eminent climate scientists in the world. And he said, you know, if the climate system and the tipping points interact and the cascades develop, 
then this is the most important question to understand because, and I quote, right now it would be the end of our civilization. So that's what I think is at, is, is at stake, whether we're actually going to be here or not. So the benefits are, are overwhelming. The other choices, which we're now on, uh, can't be talked about. Certainly we will see a, um, a, an energy system, a renewable energy system, where the cost curve is already dropping below that of fossil fuels, which will be cheaper, more decentralised, and able to be located in, in remote locations. An energy system which is which is actually viable and sustainable, both for stationary energy and and for transport. I think we'll see a rejigging of manufacturing. I mean, our, our use of cement and steel and how we produce steel will change. I think out of this pandemic, perhaps a reflection on how and why we consume and how we organise society and the benefits of social solidarity and perhaps even being a bit less obsessed by working 70 hours a week and having a bit more time with families and the importance of a family and the people around us and the people in our neighbourhood and our street and uh, how we might help each other. So I think there are a lot of opportunities out of this pandemic crisis. Two quick questions. Is your new report just about Australia and how can listeners get this report, Fatal Calculations? Fatal Calculations is directed at an international audience. It's a big picture story of how economics is uh, underestimated the cost. Our policymakers have swallowed that. The reasons why economists have been involved in these fatal miscalculations, why many of the things we try and put an economic price upon, like ecosystems and human life, are beyond value. It will be. It, it is out and it's available at our website, which is breakthroughonline.org.au or perhaps if people just Google Breakthrough Fatal Calculations, they will find it because the report is called Fatal Calculations, How Economics Has Underestimated Climate Damage and Encouraged Inaction. We have been speaking with David Spratt from climatecodered.org. Visit the Breakthrough National Center for Climate Restoration at their website. And I will put links to all this in my own show blog at ecoshock.org. David, thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Alex. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. Please pass this program on to your friends. Get it free at ecoshock.org. That was David Spratt talking to Alex Smith from an interview on Alex's show, Radio Eco Shock, which plays on 3CR 6am every Sunday. Um, you're listening to City Limits on 3CR. You can listen live every Wednesday at 9am or you can also podcast us or find us on the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au. So at the top of the show, we talked to Howard Morosi from Friends of Public Housing and we mentioned renters organising action and resistance. And uh, we also talked about the Victorian government's announcements um, of a rent freeze and some other financial support for renters. All of that information is in our podcast link and also available on the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au slash city limits. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.